Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Scott Shea is an interesting man. He's a successful businessman and banker who co-founded a bank in 2001. He even had a TEDx talk where he spoke on Wall Street on the theme, More Banks, Fewer Problems. However, he's also an Orthodox Jew who is passionate about his faith. In this interview, we talk about his book, In Good Faith, including why he wrote it, why monotheism matters today, how he can believe in God despite the Holocaust, and why he believes the Bible is trustworthy in the face of higher biblical criticism. Here now is episode 298, Orthodox Jew Defends God and Bible, with Scott Shea. Hello, Scott Shea, and welcome to Restitutio. I'm so glad you could join me today. It's a pleasure to be here, Sean. Uh, Well, to get started, I thought you could introduce yourself and tell us just a little bit about your background. So I'm actually a pretty unlikely person to be on your show in that I have a business background. Uh, I've spent my career in finance and banking, but on the side, I've always had a passion for the Bible, um, for understanding the Bible, for the archaeology of the Bible. And since my parents sent me to Hebrew school, I've always wondered just why were they doing that? Why is this whole God thing important? And I've had a lot of experiences. I feel like I was on a mission in a certain kind of way to write this book. I spent five years of all of my discretionary free time. Whenever, you know, I was always the uh, the, the the guy on the flight who was working his way through. So it was probably yep. annoying uh, people nearby. Oh, I can relate. But, <laughs> but I threw myself into this. I think that it's just so important because I came to the conclusion that we live in a scary time when the whole reason that the Bible was written, the Hebrew scriptures was written, which was to overturn idolatry, is essentially returning. And we're seeing it sadly day to day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, let's get into that a little bit more in a minute. So your, your background is in uh, finance and business, and I watched a TEDx of you uh, talking about some something on Wall Street and uh, yep. making some recommendations there, and yet at the same time you have been for you know really since childhood is that right uh, a person of faith? Yes. And yes. Uh, so you wrote this book in good faith. It's uh, what we Christians would call an apologetics book, uh, a book that seeks to give reasons for your faith. And uh, you you mentioned this. Uh, sushi dinner. I wonder if you could just mention that a little bit, cover that a little bit. What what happened while eating sushi that sparked this whole thing? That's what really triggered it. But what sparked it started many decades before. So I, I'd had uh, a meal with a reasonably well-known Wall Street person. And he, like so many others, knew I was an observant Jew. And he just was teasing me, you know, why do you waste all your time, so much time with this religion bunk? Um, don't we know that there's that the God you're talking about is a non-existent God, that we humans really should stop wasting our time worshiping made-up gods by made-up books? And 
really what we ought to do is worship humanity because that's the highest form of existence. And we humans can figure out what's right and wrong for ourselves without the help of, without the imagined help of some, you know, non-existent God will get us into more trouble than that God is worth. And that's what really triggered it for me because he sort of summed up in a way that I couldn't have done myself, which is we should start deifying man, you know, which is a form of idolatry that the Bible is made up, not distinguishing between the God of the Bible and gods like Zeus and right. and other pantheons of gods that really are very different and not having any clue as to the difference between the almighty that created the universe and uh, Zeus, Jupiter, Hermes, whoever. And I realized how this was a very well-educated fellow and he was clueless. And I started to recognize that people, because I am an observant Jew, people would ask me questions. And by the way, not just Jews, mostly not Jews, mostly Christians, some Muslims. And I actually found myself gently explaining certain Christian, depending on what, whether they were Catholic, Greek Orthodox, uh, Protestant, different shades. I, to the extent that I knew, I'd actually start trying to explain uh, what I was thinking about in, in terms that would be more akin to what they would be comfortable with. And it turns out that I really would get two types of responses from people. Well, I believe in God, but God makes no sense. So I'm just going to park my rational brain at the door and I'm going to do whatever I do. I'd have other people who would say that God doesn't make sense. It's just, it's irrational. I'm going to, you know, like have Christmas for my kids, but I'm not going to tell them to believe any of this stuff. Right. And then there'd be a third group who I think were along my realm, which is it's rational to believe in God with all we know about science and the historicity of the Bible and our sense of modern morality. And just yesterday, we're having this, I don't know when you, this, this podcast, but yesterday was Yom Kippur for us. Yes, it was. And which is, uh, which is our uh, highest holy day and the day that we believe that, the, uh, that, that, that Moses descended the second time with uh, the tablets. Someone turned to me in synagogue, who knows I've written the book and is, and, and is a friend and said, how in this day and age can anybody not believe in God? Huh. And that's sort of the third group, and that's the group that I really put myself in. And I thought there was a need to write a book for those, right? And and that's what I that's what I set out to do. And you know, it's a it's a dangerous thing making a decision to do something major like that because I gave up a lot to do it, and yet I'm certainly very happy I did it. Right. Yeah. And in a sense, you've made yourself a target. Because as soon as you are out there and you've written something, now people are going to respond to it. Well, let's talk about monotheism. This seems to be the big idea of your your book, uh, sort of like a, a key concept. You've got this grouping of faiths, Jewish, Christian, Muslim, the monotheistic faiths, and you have interviews from representatives of each of these faith communities sprinkled throughout the book. Uh, what, what do you mean by monotheism here? Could you go into that a little bit? So here's the key that, that most people don't get. And I'm not talking about your listeners necessarily, but most people, 99% of the people that I meet, that I met on book tour, don't get what the Bible was written for. 
the Bible was written to overturn idolatry. And people these days think idolatry is just some sort of quaint bowing down to statues or the like. But what they don't get is that idolatry is something much more substantial. It's a set of lies about power. It's about ascribing super authority or superpower to finite beings, I, people, individuals, mm-hmm. ideologies, or natural processes, and in the ancient world, animals, not so much anymore. So we may have thought, by the way, that we defeated the God King Pharaoh 3,300 years ago at the Exodus. But in reality, the whole 20th century was a catalog of God King Pharaohs, Stalin. Mao, Pol Pot, the Assad family, the Kim family, and it goes on, Hitler. I mean, it goes on and on and on. And they all use the same tropes as Pharaoh did. Theater, poetry, pageantry, parades, all, of course, backed up with demonstrations of brutal, of brutality and brutal violence. And together with that, they were able to do whatever they wanted. Like, how did Stalin get away with murdering all of the kulaks, starving a quarter of the Ukraine, and sending tens of millions to the gulag? Mm. How did Mao get away with directly causing the murder of probably 75 million Chinese? And both Hitler and Mao, I'm sorry, both Stalin and Mao, died in their beds peaceably. I mean, nobody... Nobody questioned their super authority. I mean, that's one of the reasons why Stalin had his his face broadcast by the Soviet space agency into space, because he was a god. Hitler was a god. Mao was a god. They directly teach in North Korea that the Kim family are gods. And if you have that sort of authority, like was everywhere in the pre-biblical world, you get lots and lots of horrors because There's no sense that we're all created in God's image. We're created and we're only loyal to our God King. If someone else has something we want, we can just go take it. And if we have to murder people, we have to murder people. And here's the other thing that people don't get is that idolatry happens not just on a macro basis of the Stalins and Maos of the world, but it also, and we're susceptible to it, on a micro basis, on, an, on a, the basis of our everyday encounters. So how did Matt Lauer and Charlie Rose and Harvey Weinstein and Kevin Spacey, and the list goes on and on too. It does. How did they achieve what they did? Well, they turned themselves into idols. I mean, you could not question Charlie Rose at CBS. He was unquestioned and unquestionable within his company and his industry. Same thing for all the other people I've mentioned and a host of others. They assume super authority over people's careers. <clears throat> if Harvey Weinstein didn't like you, he could pass the word. And indeed, you weren't going to get any any roles in Hollywood. Wow. That's a super authority. That's a non-legitimate use of authority. And it was because, like the other God King Pharaohs, he it was his whim. Or maybe sexual predilections, but it's his whim. Just like... Hitler decided he wanted to kill the Jews. Stalin decided to kill the Kulaks. Um, Nobody else matters but the will of the God King or the will of the ideology. And that's what's so frightening. I mean, look, we just had a few days ago the 70th anniversary of Mao's uh, revolution in China. And 
If you look at that parade, take a little while to, to, to look at it on YouTube. It is straight out of Pharaoh. Hmm. Absolutely straight out of Pharaoh. The parade, the pageantry, the salutes, um, the uh, genuflections to Xi Jinping. It's just remarkable. So it hasn't changed. The Bible's message is still very, very relevant to us. And I, you know, I frankly, and I think anybody who's opening their eyes to, to, to the world sees that there's a tremendous amount of idolatry going on in the world. Yeah. And the Bible's as relevant today as it's ever been. Yeah. Uh, so let's, let's uh, press into that a little bit more as far as evil and suffering. Uh, for me, this was easily one of the most important parts of the book. Uh, it's one thing for someone to pontificate about pain and suffering from the lap of luxury. It's quite another thing to have the conversation with Auschwitz in the background. Uh, tell us about your dad and his experience and how this sharpened this question in your mind. Like, why, why would God allow suffering and evil? When I mentioned earlier in the interview that the meal with um, the atheist was the trigger, I mean, really, I had been thinking about these issues since I was very young. My father was born in Svexner, Lithuania. And he was growing up like every other kid and, you know, every other Jewish kid in, in Svexner, Lithuania. And then the Nazis came in. And when they did, on the day that they came in, they murdered my father's father. They created lines. They murdered, they put my father into a line where he was murdered. They murdered his brothers. They murdered his uncles. They murdered everybody. My closest relative is a, on my father's side, is a second cousin once removed. Everybody was murdered. Wow. And my father made it through the Holocaust by, first he was put at the Sventlena um, work camp. At, he was moved to another work camp. He was then, at a certain point, moved to Auschwitz. Then he was lucky enough to be moved to another work detail. And then he ended up being liberated um, from Dachau. The reason it was so lucky that he was liberated from Dachau, he was liberated by the American army, which is a very just army. And, and he's, my father's a tremendous patriot uh, uh, from that because my father was 60 pounds at the time that he was liberated. I can't even believe that. What does that even mean? 60 pounds. I mean, that's just skin and bones, literally, right? It's skin and bones and it's days from death. Hmm. And, and you can look, sadly, you can find on YouTube images of recently released inmates from the Nazi concentration camps. Unfortunately, that was my father. Um, he was skin and bones. And the reason he was lucky is that at first when they liberated these inmates, the uh, soldiers would hand them food. Um, or give them a candy bar. I mean, they, they were, you know, they realized these people needed the food more than, than they did. Yes. And the people ate, the inmates ate, and then they died because they either went into insulin shock, their, their, their gastrointestinal system couldn't digest. So my father was very lucky and then he was liberated at a time when they realized this and they put him in a, in a military hospital. And he was in that military hospital for the better part of a year. Wow. So my father had this unusual relationship with God that I don't think many people had, and then he was sure there was God. There wasn't faith. If, if the smallest thing had happened differently in my father's journey, I mean, so small, being in one line from another line, standing in one place at a certain time versus a minute later, he would have been dead. 
and he knew that. And when he got to Chicago, he knew that there was a very narrow quantum path that got him to Chicago to remarry to have a son. But yet he was pretty angry at God because his father, as I told you, everybody he knew was murdered. Wow. So this issue of, of evil, my father knew, sadly, all too well. And, and what framed this book in a, a conversation that stood out with me, it's, 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 it was when I was 10-ish years old. That my father, so there was this group in Chicago, 99.5% of the Jewish Lithuanians were murdered. Like it's one half of 1% that survived. And they're, they're, but they were very loyal to each other, the Jewish Lithuanians, because they were so few. Mm-hmm. So in Chicago, they had a club. And it was not really, it's not like a big, lavish club. They would take, you know, they would rent out multi-purpose rooms and, you know, synagogue catering halls and at parties every so often and they play cards they love to play cards and we never nobody ever talked about the holocaust the children all knew not to talk about the holocaust but one time and it was just it's actually this time of year because it was before it was before the high holidays as they were playing cards one of the people at the table said um, a man said uh, how can you go to synagogue for the high holidays um, where was God when accounted for the dead members of our families? Mm-hmm. And that's the only time I heard them discuss this, literally the only time. And they, some said, look, there is no God. Get over it. We're on our own. Others said, this was a God. Our God is a God who meted out punishment for disobedience. We Jews suffered because of divine retribution. We didn't follow the commandments. We didn't know what was at stake. Another said, we can't see the whole plan. Uh, If it weren't for the Holocaust, the state of Israel would have never been voted into existence by the world. So as bad as it was, the Holocaust led to this greater good. And then there was a group, and I remember they blamed the rest, who's blamed the rest of it. God was right there for us all the time, wondering why his other children were doing nothing. Why didn't they bomb the, the, the train tracks to Auschwitz? Why didn't, you know, unfortunately, President Roosevelt and Churchill and Stalin, who knew exactly what was going on, do anything to disrupt the final solution? And then the other answer was the answer my father gave, uh, which is silence. And it's a, a, you know, it was a certainty of God, but a, a, great, in a, a great difficulty in grasping why that happened. And I always thought my father, and, and this was the case of the other survivors, you know, God knew that these survivors were giving him the silent treatment because my father would go to synagogue, but he really wouldn't do a lot of praying. He I see. Got called up for, a, you know, to be the, for the Torah. They'd all make, these folks would all make sure that their children were bar bat mitzvah, but they didn't do a lot of praying. They really were giving God the silent treatment. And I always believe that God understood why. Totally. Sometimes the silent treatment is appropriate even to the Almighty. Um, <laughs> and maybe that's, in a way, the most articulate prayer at times is silence. And so I've been living with this issue, and I, I went to the Bible to really try to figure it out. Because I think that's the, that's the place to go, is to the Bible. And there's plenty of texts in the Bible uh, from Job 
um, to the book of Esther, which talk about these problems in a very direct and, and for atheists who don't get it in a very deep and textured way that provides us with at least approaches, if not answers. And let me, let me just say one other thing. For me, for me, I think that this is the question for believers. I think when you really get into it, believers have a better question for, have a better answer for everything from creation to how life began to most of modern morality. The one place that's tough is our belief in an omnibenevolent God that allows evil. This is the toughest question for believers. You don't think it's an impossible question? No, I definitely don't. I don't think it's an impossible question, but that's still it's still the most difficult one. I mean, yeah. I think there's clearly different kinds of, of evil. Most evil, unfortunately, and I, I go through this in the book. I mean, the, the Bible actually does identify most sorts of evils, how we blame others, how we let uh, evil feed on lies, which is essentially idolatry. And I think this all goes to why we need divine law. And because we do have, uh, you know, an evil impulse in us. And that's why we need the Bible to protect us. That's our test. The Bible is clear. You know, life is a set of tests. But I think the book of Esther, in a way, gives us one of the best answers to the Holocaust and to understanding evil, which is that, you know, as I was saying, there were people who could have stopped or at least caused there to be lots and lots of less deaths from the Holocaust, who were in a position to know and do something but didn't do anything including, sadly, even some American Jews who were received information. The New York Times, there was an article, there's a book called Buried by the New York Times. The New York Times, through its intelligence sources, knew most of what was going on in the Holocaust and really buried it in the paper, which is even the New York Times realizes that what they did was evil. Now, why, why would they bury it? Because it was just unpopular? Yeah, I mean, it's a whole book. I recommend it to your readers. I've read it, Buried by the New York Times. There's a whole variety of, frankly, the book comes up with about 10 reasons. But you know what? Whenever someone gives you 10 reasons, that usually means there's another reason that's the one reason. And I, and I, and, and it's complicated. Um, it probably had to do with its ownership. It probably had to do with wanting to fit in. It probably wanted to do with, you know, maintaining its stake as the liberal voice for um, America um, and not wanting to be particularistic and focus on the Jews, even though they knew that the final solution was focused solely on the Jews. That was the only group that was targeted for being entirely annihilated. And they were well aware of that. But mm -hmm. my basic yeah. point is, is that when, if you go to the book of Esther, Mordecai learns that all the Jews are about to be killed in the Persian Empire. So he asked Esther, the queen, to intervene. Great. Esther is reluctant to get involved. Right. She, you know, she thinks maybe, and unfortunately, I think the Jews, some Jews in America thought, you know what? It'll be okay for me. What does uh, Mordechai say? He sends back a note, something to the effect of, do not imagine that you of all Jews will escape with your life being in the king's palace. 
On the contrary, if you keep silent in this crisis, relief and deliverance will come to the Jews from another quarter, while you and your father's house will perish. And who knows, perhaps you have attained to royal position for just such a crisis. And that's when Esther recognizes she has to get involved. And Mordechai is totally aware that you can't opt out of a choice of making, of doing good or evil. But we can't just avert our gaze and say, oh, we're going to, you know, this won't impact us. That's where the whole sort of fear of, you know, fear of God, which is why it's so important, comes from. Because we, we should fear making those sorts of decisions to avoid standing up. And, you know, when it came to the Holocaust, um, relief and rel- deliverance did come in a certain kind of way in the form of the United States, in the form of the Soviet Union, the, the evil Stalin. And the life of Jews as an idea was saved. But God, I think, didn't do his part because we didn't do ours as humanity. We were not merciful. And so God wasn't merciful. And just to put a fine point in it, when my father was deported along with all of, when my father was deported and most of the Jews in selection of Lithuania were murdered on the spot, I have to say, and he, well, he has to, he has to say that the his neighbors, who were virtually all Christian, just stood around and watched. It was it was I don't want to say entertainment, but it was they stood around and watched the Jews. Nobody lifted a finger. Nobody did anything. And so, when people aren't merciful, God isn't merciful, in my view. And we're supposed to partner with God. We have a responsibility to partner with God. And, you know, again, when God, when we're silent, God is silent. And I think the opposite is true. There was no guarantee that we would win the Cold War. There was no guarantee that uh, the Soviet Union would fall. There was no guarantee that we'd win World War II you know, also. But you have to partner with God. And, and that's, that's, I think if you do, you get a tailwind. If you don't. I think uh, God lets things unfold as they unfold. Do you have a view of God's knowledge about the future, that he knows everything that's going to happen, or that the future is partly open and he's in time with us? Is that something you've thought about before? I I have thought about it, and I'm as confused as everyone else in the sense that I believe <laughs> okay. a, in an omnipotent God. I, I sort of uh, Rabbi Kiva said, um, 2000 years ago that everything is foreseen yet we all have free choice. So he, he also didn't quite understand. I mean, we, we need to believe in free choice. Otherwise we're just actors m- mouthing our lines and then there can be no moral judgment of us. It would be ridiculous for any, for there to be any moral judgment. So I think we have free will, but at the same time as we have free will, I do think God knows what the outcome will be. Okay, uh, let's w- let's talk about one of the most difficult issues in the Bible itself, the Canaanite genocide, as it's sometimes called. Uh, how is it fair that God ordered the execution of all these people, and he was really behind the, the incident there? 
Can you talk a little bit about that and explain how, how you look at that incident? I would be happy to because there's a number of things that I try to do in the book, which is I take all the, in the second section, I take all the bad stuff that people say about the Bible. And um, then I explain what the Bible is because what the Bible is actually saying, because a lot of times, and the, the, the term in Hebrew to what you're using is called the cherem. That's God decreed yes. the cherem on the seven uh, Canaanite nations. So let's see what he really did. So let's go back. You recall that when God makes the first covenant, I'm going to back up and I'm going to fast forward, but we'll get there. When God, but this is so important. When God first talks to Abraham about having the covenant of the parts, he says, know for sure that your offspring will have to be in exile. They'll have to go and become slaves because the, the evil the, of the, the, the descendant of the Canaanite tribes is not yet complete. In other words, these people are really, really bad, but it's not yet, they're not bad enough for me to order their being wiped out. Right. And by the way, and I just want to make this point in Deuteronomy 28, the whole chapter of Deuteronomy 28, it talks about if you don't do good and, and charity and righteousness in the land, I'm going to wipe you out just the same way that I wiped out everybody else who was in this land because, and here's the issue, here's the, here's the key. God is the global realtor and our mortgage is our moral behavior, particularly in the promised land. So what happens? First of all, God doesn't ever say to go in and kill everyone there is a choice. People can move. And indeed, if you notice, if you notice carefully, there are seven Canaanite nations that are said to be under the Cherem. But everywhere after we arrive in Judges, there are only really six because the, uh, the Gibeonites apparently just leave. The, they take the, the hint and they go. And even when there is a false covenant made with the Gergashites who say that they were from a distant place and they weren't really there and they make they brought some old old um, bread with they them. make a the old old bread and, and this old bread sandals, was hot out right? of the oven when we left <laughs> right exactly so even when they sign a covenant which is a false covenant Joshua and everybody else still maintains it and further, when there were those rare people who were to survive because of their righteousness, they did like Rahab and her family. And don't forget the same thing happened in Stone. Stone was to be wiped out, but yet, even though God said that he would save all of Stone if there were 10 people, he still did save the few people who were righteous. There weren't many, but he saved yeah. them. When later in the book of Kings, it talks, God says, I'm going to wipe out the northern kingdom. He says, but for 7,000 people who didn't bow down to Baal. So the only people who are due to be wiped out 
are people who were essentially they should have been wiped out. Oh, but one sec, let me just interrupt um, here, uh, just so the listeners know. Sodom is uh, Sodom in our <laughs> our way of Sodom. speaking. I, yes. I just uh, looked up the Hebrew and noticed yes. the Shiva there. I'm like, whoa, I guess it is Sodom. <laughs> so uh, it is yeah. Sodom. I, I will. You'll, you'll have to correct me if I, I default. No, it's, it's fine. I just so. that one wasn't obvious. I don't think for people. So just a little uh, little insertion there. Go ahead. So here's the, here's the point. If you were good you would survive, even if you were part of these groups. If you weren't good, you had a choice of getting out of Dodge because there's nowhere that the Bible says hunt down the seven Canaanite nations. Nowhere. You leave, you're good. You may not be happy, but you're good. And nowhere did the Israelites take sport or, or happiness in doing this. I mean, I don't want to say this in a, you know, there, there, in many cases, particularly in the past, there were groups that sort of enjoyed killing and murdering. There's nothing in the Bible that says that the Jews like this, which is, by the way, a, another ridiculous thing that people say about the Bible trying to say that it, it was made up. They say uh, the Jews said that the Bible told them to wipe out the, the seven Canaanite nations because they didn't because they didn't want to blame it on themselves. But in reality, in those days, that was fine. I mean, wiping out people was sort of uh, wasn't even uh, something you um, that disturbed right. breakfast. Here, the Jews, the Israelites, because they were due to be a moral nation, uh, were needed to be ordered to do this, and they needed to be ordered to do it in a certain way. Otherwise, they wouldn't do it. And again, anybody who wanted to join up, like Rachav was fine. When you get later with David buying the the threshing um, house from um, a Jeb, yes, who is a, as you'll know, a Jebusite. Yep. Right. He's one of, that's one of the seven nations. Obviously, this fellow is depicted as a righteous person. Yeah, it's like, what in the world is he doing there? Just randomly, like, I thought all the Jebusites died. And then there's uh, there's the guy who not only lives in that land, but is given the ability to own property and, you know, how David treats him, you know, is, uh, you know, very, very equitable. He doesn't just seize his property, right? Right. An ancient despot would have just put him to the sword. I mean, but there's a respect that, okay, this is a righteous fellow. He gets to stay. And that's totally consistent. Unfortunately, the Israelites let too many non-righteous people stay. And that's was problematic. And the Book of Judges makes it clear that that was problematic. But that wasn't the going in idea. And, and so when you look at you compare what the Israelites were ordered to do and what they did to virtually any other conquering period including, sadly, in the United States, where we moved into areas where there were indigenous peoples when we didn't need to. Mm-hmm. It's not really as troubling. And I, and I, and I leave you with one point, and you, you know Isaiah and you know Amos. Consistently, both are saying, hey, you Jews, you Israelites, you're just like everybody else. You have the same moral requirements that everybody else does. And if you lose track of them, you don't have any lease to this land either, and you will be wiped out too. Mm-hmm. And sadly, that's what the whole book of Kings is about. 
Well, let's let's talk a little bit more about the Bible. I mean, this this book you wrote is called In Good Faith, and a lot of it is to really ex- explain or defend the position that you have that there is a God and that the Bible is in a sense from God and you know that it that it's not just a pack of lies or full of all kinds of myths and a lot of people these days, you know, they believe in Wellhausen's theory, the documentary hypothesis, and, you know, you, you have a whole section in here where you go through the different theories that scholars have put forward over the years, and basically you just say, well, look, the scholars don't know what, they don't even have a consensus at all on this. Uh, could you give us a little bit of, of uh, a positive case? Why do, you think, um, why do you think people should trust the Bible at all? So first, what would be your top reasons? Go ahead. Oh well, I would say this. First of all, the Wellhausen argument is a bunch of bunk. I mean, I don't say it quite that way in the book. (laughs) I mean, it's people who are—they're not even clever by two half. They're clever. They're not even half clever because (laughs) they don't get the friggin' Bible. I mean, people think that gee whiz, you know, the first chapter of the Bible uses the word Elohim. Can I use these words in your show? Yes, people yes. will know what yeah, I'm no, talking about. No problem. Okay. Yeah. So people will, you know, the first chapter of the Bible is Elohim and uses that word almost exclusively in the creation of the universe. The second chapter and the third chapter use the what we call Yud K, which is the ineffable name of God. And uh, we call it Hashem. I don't know. That's probably a term that your, your listeners may not be, but I'm going to refer to it as Hashem, which means the name in Hebrew. Yep. And so people say, oh, no problem. This is just two different views of the this is just two different authors and some um, sloppy editor just put in both stories because for some reason he didn't think he could drop either story. No, they're missing it. Elohim, if you look throughout the entire Bible of Moses, talks about a God who is a creator God. God in the first chapter speaks and the world is created. There's no effort. It's an effortless creation. If you use the word Hashem, Yudke Vavke, you always will find that is a God who you have a personal relationship with in the five books of Moses. You can find that without exception. This is not a confusion that we needed to let uh, Julius Wellhausen figure out who, uh, you know, who thought that he, he had discovered something new. This is something that biblical commentators and, and ancient rabbis had known for a long time. The name is the person, <coughs> is the God that I have a personal relationship with. And I'll give you some of the proof text. The, you know, when, during the second crea- so-called second creation story, back and forth, the term used is the, the Hashem, the personal name of God, except for one place. Interestingly enough, who is the one person who doesn't, or the one entity that doesn't use the name Yudke Vavke? It's the snake. The snake doesn't have a personal relationship with God. Interesting. The snake is just created. And so, uh, you know, I would say this, the, the Bible was, you may or may not like the Bible, I tell people, but it is really, really carefully 
put together. There's no throwing different, uh, uh, you know, stories together in a mishmash. Right, I mean, right. sloppy look, seams. Yeah. And look, my proof text would actually be the Christian scriptures. You have four gospels, mm-hmm. right? Nobody felt compelled to put the four stories in one and harmonize them somehow and do it in a sloppy way. Why bother? So, you know, I commend people to read the first few creation stories because they will find also even the number of of Elohims comports to the multiples of seven, which is an important creation number. If you read the Noah story carefully again, which is another creation story, the same thing happens. God, when he acts as the creator God outside of dealing with particular humans, uses the word, the word used is is universally Elohim. And when God is having a personal relationship with Noah and explaining to him why this is happening, then it's it's Hashem. It's the ineffable name of God. Right. Or in our translations, they translate it the Lord and they capitalize the L-O-R-D there. Yeah, the, they're all different. Just frankly, they're all different conceptions. And I'm glad you do that because it's really important to, to make those distinctions. Yeah. So um, any other reasons you'd like to mention about why you think the Bible should be trusted? Well, I, you know, I, I go through it in the book, but essentially, and, and you've done that on one past podcast. I mean, 3,000 years ago, the Merneptah steel was uh, acknowledging that there was a David in 841 BC, you had Jehu, who's, you know, being depicted even in an Assyrian obelisk. Mm-hmm. There's actually, I have yet to find any text that shows why the Bible should be dismissed. There is yet to be, and, you know, people brought camels and then, you know, and said, well, that's a slam dunk. There were no Yeah, camels. talk to us about the camel. That was a big uh, a big deal at one point. They said, oh, well, you know, Abraham rode on a camel, therefore, and, and we know camels didn't ex- were, weren't domesticated yet, so therefore the patriarchs were, you know, made up out of whole cloth later. Uh, what, what, was, uh, what was your case on that? Yeah, I mean, here's another case where people are so excited to disprove the Bible that— they say, okay, you know, no camels, no uh, patriarchs. And in reality, and that was really their smoking gun. But if you take a look at the actual data, and I have to give credit to Kevin Kitchen for this, he's basically has uh, ferreted out from the archaeological evidence, two pieces of evidence. One is a figure of a kneeling camel holding two jars in a tomb. So the camel was kneeling. That's clearly a, a he's kneeling to the person who is uh, putting the jars on. So that's clearly and this dates from 1900 BCE, which would even predate Abraham. And then there is a jawbone of a camel that was found in a tomb with other with humans, which meant that, you know, again, you in those days, people would bury their possessions with them. And so both of those items show that there were domesticated camels at that time. Now, they may have been rare. You know, if you were trying to say 5,000 years from now that everybody uh, was um, driving a Maserati, even though a Maserati is mentioned in a text, well, you'd 
you know, you wouldn't find very many Maseratis. You'd find a few scraps. And that's more or less what the case is with the camel. Right. And there's really, again, nothing in terms of the names. You know, that's the other thing that people would try to argue with, is that the names were not relevant to the time periods. That's not true. Also, when you get to the book of Exodus, when people try to argue that the Bible was written 250 BC or 300 BC, there were ta- there were cities and there were actual geography that was different from a thousand years prior to that when the Jews, when the Israelites left Egypt that couldn't have been known. We can know it today, but could literally not have been known to someone writing 300 BCE. So there's plenty of positive evidence for the Bible. And again, as you said, you're supposed to, you're supposed to approach every book with a sympathetic read to figure out, okay, how does this fit in? But as unfortunately, and that's true of Ovid's Metamorphosis, that's true of Homer, that's true of all of the ancient histories. The one exception is the Bible where, you know, scholars have a chip on their shoulder, you know, right. looking for every little thing that they can find to circumvent it. And, and I would bet that the reason why is because of what we started with, this whole idea of monotheism and idolatry and how you see this as a major problem today. People don't want there to be a God because then they have someone to answer to, right? That is correct. And, you know, that gets, if I could say one thing that I, I, I've had as I've been a book tour, this is one of the most one of the most gratifying things is people give my book to their relatives who are non-believers. Uh, even more than reading the book, them I hope they read the book, my book, <laughs> the, themselves. But even more so because it at least says to non-believers that here is a rational argument for belief. You may not agree with me, but don't think it's stupid. Don't dismiss right. me. That's been a valuable service. I say, I guess, with some humility. You know, I, humility is only one of my major. Uh, one of my major attributes, so. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's good, you know, that uh, the book can can do some good, and uh, I realize that, um, you know, we're we're coming from different worlds in a sense. You're coming from a a Jewish background, I'm coming from a Christian background, but I did want to mention just to you that um, our uh, listeners, the majority of them, uh, do not hold to the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, we we hold we're what's called biblical Unitarian Christians, and we we hold to the idea that the um, that Hashem is as you would say, or what we would call the Father, is the only true God, and and we think that that's really what Jesus believed and taught in the Gospels, and so we we might be a little closer than you even realized. Wow! And let me leave you with one fun fact that uh, you may not be aware of: in the times of the Mishnah, which was one of our early texts. People were not referred to as rabbis. There was Hillel, there was Shammai, there were Abtalion. They were all the, the first recorded person uh, with the title rabbi was Jesus, hmm. who's called wow. a rabbi. If you, and then later that term becomes popularized within the Jewish community. And, you know, obviously now it's, it's, it's the title. Hmm. But prior to Jesus, there's no one recorded as being called Rabbi. Interesting. 
Do you, now, let me ask you one other just offhand question here. Do you think that Gentiles have to keep Torah, or that that is just for uh, Jewish people? The Torah is for it was given to the Jews, and they had everybody has a potential, has a stake in the world to come. If they follow the seven Noahide laws, according to the Bible, everybody is made in the image of God, and it's our test to be righteous. And that's what the Bible is coming to tell us. Um, The Bible tells us over and over again, don't bore me with your ritual observances if you're not going to do righteousness, do justice. And according to Jewish tradition, that's the when you when you go to the 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 pearly gates, as it were, the first question you're asked was, you know, were you truthful? Were you faithful? Did you conduct your personal transactions in a faithful manner? Not I'm not even talking business. Were you did you do things on a one on one basis where you made the world better? Right. If the answer is yes, you can you can go on. If the answer is no, that's uh, not, not where you want to be in that interview. Well, uh, let me let me end with this. If you could snap your fingers and change one thing about people's perception of Judaism, what would it be? Thinking that Judaism is particularistic when it really is universal. The Bible was written for everybody. Okay. Very good. Very good. Well, thanks so much, uh, Scott, for taking some time out to talk with me today. Thank you, Sean. It was really a pleasure. I like talking Bible. Well, that's it for this interview. Thanks for tuning in. Scott Shea is certainly an interesting man, and his book has a lot to offer. Not that I agree with everything, but there is so much in there that I think can be really helpful for us today. You can get his book on Amazon. It's called In Good Faith, Questioning Religion and Atheism. And you can also check more about him out at scottshea.com. That's Scott with two T's, then S-H-A-Y.com. Also, in the show notes for this episode, I have a link to K.A. Kitchen's book that Scott referred to called On the Reliability of the Old Testament. And he leaned on that book heavily in the part of his book where he talked about archaeology. So take a look at that. Also, I had a couple of comments I wanted to read out. Today, at the time of this recording and releasing of this episode, is Halloween 2019. And so it's only appropriate that Victor Gluckin wrote in on Offscript episode 15, Should Christians Celebrate Halloween, and wrote the following. How are there not more comments on this episode? This was such a great conversation that I re-listened to this week as I prepped for a sermon on this topic. It's not just a conversation for those with kids either. Some of us will have kids and should sort some of this out ahead of time. Others have kids that are grown but have a grandchild who will need help on this. Our role to influence and guide hasn't ended. And lastly, some of us do not have children ourselves, but ought we not be involved in some children's lives, some families' lives, as we are committed to make disciples of the nations and care for the orphan and the widow? Side note, we need more Offscript. Bring it back. Thank you, Victor, for writing in and for that impassioned request to bring Offscript back. I will certainly raise the issue with my co-hosts, uh, Dale Fitzsimmons and Rose Ryder, and see if they are interested in rebooting Offscript. As so often happens, you know, life is busy, and we all have so many different ways in which we're serving God, and and so it's not always easy to uh, figure something out. We did record in the Offscript series for those who are who are new, maybe not be familiar with it. We did record 47 episodes of Offscript, so you can get those all on the the feed. Or if you're just interested in the Offscript episodes by themselves, we have a separate feed 
for just off script. I think it's just called off script uh, or Restitutio off script, something like that. You can get that in uh, Apple or Android. Uh, but this is certainly an issue today, and Christians have varying positions on it. Uh, some of us think that Halloween is hopelessly irredeemable, that it's evil, and that Christians have no business trick-or-treating uh, with their kids, that it's just uh, feeding into a satanically inspired celebration. And then others of us are so loose on this that we'll dress our kids up as legit demons and monsters and vampires and characters from popular culture that are also clearly evil, like John Wick, or from celebrities that live absolutely God-defying lifestyles. So uh, there's a wide range here. Uh, Some of us think it's okay to watch horror movies, some of us don't. Um, What is a Christian to do? Well, hey, if you're interested, check out this episode. It's It's off scripts number 15. You can get in your feed, and let's see what the Bible says and see how we can figure out how to live Christianity out authentically in our own culture today. Also, we got a comment from Jim Winchester on the Restorationist Manifesto, which is podcast episode 88, um, but he actually dropped the comment on the essay, because that is, all, that is both a podcast as well as an essay, and he writes, Wow, where do I even begin? This is at once decisive, insightful, profound, comprehensive, and very well written. It is a superb catalyst to both propel and challenge an ardent Christian to circumspectly consider their role-slash-stance to the Scriptures and their overall mode of discipleship, i.e., what will their dedication to Christ actually look like? Well done. Well, Jim, thanks so much for those kind words. If you haven't yet read the Restorationist Manifesto, I encourage you to. You can get it right on restitudio.org. You can listen to the audio version on Podcast 88, uh, or you can just click on it's actually on the homepage. You just scroll down. There's a, a video version of it and then also the actual written version. Uh, of course, the written version is by far the most detailed. It has all the footnotes and references. And in this, it's not really an essay. It's a, it really is a manifesto. I'm, I was trying to write in that genre of manifesto, if that makes any sense to you at all. And uh, the idea is to lay out a posture towards Scripture, a posture towards interpretation and towards doctrine that we could then agree on, even if we don't currently agree on all the particulars the same, we can agree that the Bible is primary, that Scripture is intelligible, that we can actually put doctrines together from different places in the Bible, that there's biblical cohesion. And we can also agree that just because an idea is popular doesn't mean it's true. And that even if restoring doctrine and restoring truth from reading the Bible, reading ancient history, comparing it against other ideas, that that may disrupt others, that it's worth it, and that truth is better arrived at in community than alone. So these are some of the restorationist values. Uh, I've actually had a good amount of feedback on this restorationist manifesto from Church of Christ folks, who um, very much are restorationist in their background and going all the way back to Barton Stone and Alexander Campbell. And, uh, you know, it's really a sort of a minority port 
within Christianity and a lot of the the bigger denominations and the more like hardened evangelical types they don't like restorationism because it does call into question precious traditions such as the doctrine of the trinity but there is a, a stream within Christianity and I, I believe that there always has been a stream within Christianity that just wants to get back to what Jesus and the apostles believed and taught and uh, so we're, that's really what this whole podcast is about and what we're trying to do week by week here, we do it in different ways, by looking at apologetics like we did today, uh, by looking at doctrines, we do a lot of doctrine, uh, but also what good is all of our doctrine and our reasons for our faith if we don't actually live it out? So practical Christian living is super important as well, and we don't want to lighten up on any one of those three, our reasoning for our faith, um, what we actually believe, and how we live it out. They're all so important. So thanks so much, uh, Jim, for writing in. I think this was a response to a Facebook post in our Facebook group, which you can find just by searching for Restitutio group. It's like restitution with no N uh, group, and you should be able to find it there. That's it for this week. I do certainly want to thank Scott Shea for his willingness to come on the show and, and to reach across to somebody outside of his own faith to have some meaningful dialogue. I really I really think that's great. We need more of that where people are, are willing to reach across lines in order, and not, not to compromise, but to engage with each other. So that's it for this week. We'll see you next time. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.